Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. All right, thanks everyone for joining us today. We've got a great show for you lined up. We've got a returning guest. You may remember Professor Daniel Aldrich from an earlier episode we did titled Academia to the Rescue. We spent a lot of time talking about community-based resilience, the connectedness, the social bonds within a community, and how important they are for disaster response, disaster recovery, how to build them in disaster preparedness. Well, he's back today to talk about his new book, Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters. And we really take a deep dive on all of these issues within the context of the uh, Japan's triple disasters on 311. A lot of great insights from this, a lot of tangents we go off on a little bit, trying to apply it and understand it through the lens of U.S. policy. But always a great guest, always some great insights. We're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, so joining me now and returning to the podcast is Daniel Aldrich. Professor Aldrich is the director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program and a professor of political science and public policy at Northeastern University. He's the author of the book Building Resilience and most recently the author of Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters and the subject of our conversation today. Daniel, thanks so much for, uh, for coming back on the podcast to talk about your book. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so I guess just going back from the beginning, you know, this is a really complex disaster. I think there's a lot of just really interesting things in the way that you're looking at this from the perspective of networks and governance and um, um, community uh, and the social aspects of disaster. But I wonder if we can go back just a little bit further. What what ultimately led you to focus on this particular topic? Yeah, so I've been involved with Japan since 1991, if you can believe it, when I was a high school student. And a lot of my early research hit on Japan's various past disasters. And I had just been in Japan before the March 11th disaster in 2011. So I watched on the news, I'm sure everyone did, in just disbelief that, you know, the tsunami, the earthquake, the nuclear meltdowns were so disruptive to the entire country, so many deaths, such a broad-scale outpouring of emotion and, and assistance from North America and elsewhere. So I figured I had to really get back in there. This was so important to me. You know, I've, I've done field work in many of the communities that were affected by the disaster. I've spent time up there in Sendai before this. So it was important to me to sort of get involved on a personal level. But also, I knew there'd be so much to learn from Japan, which has, um, has once again gone through another shock. I would say this is the third major shock over the last hundred years they've been through this country, and one that really we have a lot to learn from. And you approach this really looking um, like a lot of your work through this this idea of social capital and kind of the bonds that folks have between each other. Um, and I know we spoke about this a bit on uh, the last episode of the podcast um, that you were on, but um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more too, just in terms of you know why why this topic is so interesting and why you sort of chose this as the lens to really look at and explore uh, Japan's 311 disasters. Yeah, for me, this began personally when I was actually living in New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina. And we watched as my expectations about what would happen to our family that had been pushed out of Katrina on the, I think the 28th of August in 2005, just as the rains were falling. Our house was destroyed, our car, our possessions, hard drives, all that stuff went. I kind of expected either the market or the state to step up. 
And the reality of our lived experience was that it was really friends, friends of friends, religious organizations, people we'd never met before, the network of people that were around us we often didn't even see that were the core factor for us, for getting back on our feet, getting a new place to stay, getting our kids back into school, finding a new job, all of those things that come after a major shock. And that has really stuck with me, this concept that we often envision disasters in terms of what am I doing about it individually? Do I have my kit, my batteries, my food and water? Or what's the government doing about it? You know, is the U.S. government or the Japanese government building a seawall? Or are they helping out with some kind of plan? And again, in our own experience, I think around the world I've seen now as well, it's really more the community-level response, the ability of people to connect and work collaboratively that makes the difference. So for me, that's always a interest I have. The more data I collected from Japan, the more interviews that I did, the more time I spent in the field, uh, the more clear it became to me that it was definitely a function, these outcomes of surviving disaster, rebuilding a community, finding mental equilibrium after an evacuation. All those factors were much more a factor, uh, a, a product of those connections than other these standard answers that we have about, you know, how much money do you have? Or do you have insurance? Which are important things, of course. But in this case, as I said before, these social factors, which often are ignored, I think, came to the top of the surface. You know, I, I um, our center and a lot of the work that I do, you know, we look at a lot of these different angles of disasters, and I'm always so fascinated about your research and other colleagues uh, doing similar research on social capital, because as you mentioned, it's it's unlocked just a whole nother dimension of, uh, you know, who gets help, who doesn't, who recovers, who doesn't. And so um, I'm always really excited at, at sort of having new tools, new ways to understand all of this. Um, in the book, and I remember actually in some prior presentations you had done, we were at a meeting together in Montreal, I think about a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and you mentioned this notion of vertical ties and horizontal ties when discussing communities. And yeah. I've uh, I've stolen that from you with proper attribution, <laughs> of course. So enjoy. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, many times to sort of talk about some of the findings from that. But I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit um, about sort of the difference between those two and and what's so significant about horizontal versus vertical ties of a community. Yeah, I'm stealing actually from people like Michael Wilcock, from people like Bob Putnam. You know, these are my mentors, my advisors here. And they argued a long time ago that you should think about ties uh, both in terms of the bonding and bridging, which are the horizontal ties, but also the linking, the vertical ties. Now, bonding ties are pretty common, perhaps the most common form of social ties, which are often friends, kin, the old boy network, people that you know from school, the same language group, ethnicity, religion. So oftentimes, uh, scholars call this homophily, when we hang out with people who are like us which is a pretty normal thing, right? Communities often self-segregate, unfortunately, whether it's in North America or in Japan. You find people living together, people who are like them. So that, that's bonding ties. The good thing about us is that we bridge between groups, and bridging ties are ones that are often called weak or thin ties. Not because they aren't important, but because they often aren't as regularly used. So this might be, again, someone that you met at your workplace or at a conference. It might be a friend from a church or a synagogue or a mosque. It might be someone that you have at a club you go to occasionally. Or maybe you both like a certain pub or a bar or a sports game you, you attend. So those ties are called bridging ties. Those are still horizontal. So people at your same level of power, authority, and decision-making. If we're really, really lucky, maybe we have the vertical ties that we call linking ties. And these are ties between the normal person like me and some really powerful person, maybe the mayor of Boston or the governor of Mass. Massachusetts, or maybe I know someone at a grant agency or at FEMA, or maybe in the White House even nowadays. So, And those vertical ties are quite a different set of connections. Where the horizontal ties, maybe people who live quite nearby, right? Oftentimes, we have networks that are geographically uh, contiguous. So between where I live and where I work, maybe I know the barista, or I know a judo club, or I have a favorite place I buy my, my coffee. 
or I have a place I go to pray or whatever it's going to be, these linking ties are ties of people who actually can do something really big at a moment when my own community might be hurt or hurting. So this might be a powerful politician who can make a decision. It might be a decision maker who can decide that this community needs something or can get to help in a different way. So reality is, I think a lot of us use these ties all the time whenever we can. I know I'm always desperate. When a problem comes up, okay, who do I know? Right, mm-hmm. It's the agency that can help me. I'm having a problem with the IRB process. I'm having a problem with a student in a different school. Who do I know over there? And that's a, a natural reaction. I think the good one is to try and activate our networks in those moments. And you know, these channels, whether they're informal or formal, can bring so much in terms of information and resource and leverage. And really, that's what I found in Japan as well. Uh, both the horizontal ties, the ties of people who live nearby, people who are like me, but also the vertical ties. Both of them play roles at different times. And I think this is kind of the cool finding for me that, that I didn't think so much about beforehand. So these different ties uh, may be in your back pocket, so to speak, and not necessarily activated, but at different times in the survival and recovery processes, they come into play. And if you're lucky enough to have them, they can be incredibly beneficial to you and the place that you live. So, so let's start with horizontal ties um, and and some of the things that were you observed in in Japan and that was observed in the data after the disaster. What were some of the biggest contributions to uh, that horizontal ties had uh, yeah, to people uh, and their outcomes? So, for me, uh, the most uh, amazing stories, and these are both, both tragic and incredibly positive, were survival during the tsunami. Uh, as everyone might remember, uh, on the March 11th disaster, there was a massive earthquake. 9.0, right? So powerful from outer space, the whole Earth was visibly shaking. Uh, and that earthquake itself didn't do much damage, thanks to engineering uh, backups in Japan. Most buildings and roads and bridges stood. But the earthquake sent off a huge tsunami, massive tidal waves, some as tall as 60 feet that came ashore. And that really was the main cause of death. Something like 95% of the people who died of the 18,400 victims, they were killed by the tsunami. The interesting thing was the distribution of those deaths across Tohoku, the area of Japan hit by the tsunami, were not regular, and they weren't a function of the height of the tsunami either. So we began poking around, looking at this question of, can we measure horizontal ties right before the shock and then measure mortality during it, holding constant all the other factors that we think are important, uh, geographic setup, population density, access to roads, income, age, all that kind of thing. And it turns out, this is also the qualitative research that we did with the interviews, that people would say over and over again, the earthquake came around at 2.48 p.m., but the arrival of the tsunami was about 40 minutes later. In that 40 minutes, most average people, able-bodied, healthy people, could walk from their homes or businesses or schools along this, the shore of Japan up to higher ground, called Takadai in Japanese. So you'd get up um, about a kilometer, a kilometer and a half, maybe two miles at most, and you'd be someplace safe in that 40 minutes. But for the elderly, for the infirm, those in hospital beds or wheelchairs, that 40 minutes wasn't enough by themselves. And all the survivors that I spoke to said that someone had come knocking on their door. Someone had come and opened their house and gotten them out of that area of danger from a vulnerable spot to high ground. With that help, uh, they were able to survive. Unfortunately, many of the individuals who didn't survive were those who were trapped in buildings, in hospitals, in homes, businesses, without that kind of aid. And again, over and over again, these weren't uh, you know, random people coming in. These were friends. These were caregivers. This was kin. Uh, these horizontal ties, people who lived right nearby, knew that they were in danger and wanted to save them. And of course, every minute that you're in a dangerous situation helping someone else, you yourself are in danger. So this is real heroism, right? To go carry someone on your back up a hill as the tsunami is getting closer and closer, to take the time out to drive to your neighbor's house, put them in a car and drive them up a hill, you're, you are really doing something heroic right there. 
And again, these were not first responders or people wearing uniforms or fire people. These were neighbors who knew that Mrs. Tanaka needed help. That's an example uh, in, the, in the short term of survival of these horizontal ties. And interestingly enough, in the long term, super long term, we're talking about eight to ten years after the nuclear evacuations, right? Many families that lived near the nuclear power plant at Fukushima had to leave. Some within two hours of the meltdowns. Others had a, a day or two. But they had to leave the area. And some of them moved six or seven times over the past decade trying to find a new place to stay and had all kinds of challenges, right? Of course, if you live in a nuclear power plant that's melting down, you might be really concerned about your health and the health of your family. So that's a pretty obvious cause of anxiety. But beyond that, you probably had a mortgage for the old home that you were paying. Some banks didn't drop the old mortgage. You might have to get a new house and pay the old mortgage at the same time. Uh, some people had to get new jobs. Other people were dealing with the loss of a loved one or, the, or a sickness. So we had the chance to survey one community called Futaba over about seven years after the disasters there and the evacuation. And we asked them over and over again, how are things going for you? How, what kind of stress do you face? What kind of anxiety do you have? And we tried to figure out you know, what factors in their lives are making them feel something normal again, anything, a sense of normalcy, a rhythm of daily life. And of course, once again, these horizontal ties, having a neighbor nearby who had gone through the same kind of shock. So ideally, it was someone who moved with them over those multiple moves that they'd gone with. So they moved from Futaba, maybe first to Sendai, and from Sendai, maybe to Sapporo or wherever. So having someone with them along the way, a kin, a neighbor, a friend who moved with them, that really put them at ease. If they didn't have that kind of connection, unfortunately, people who were more isolated, more cut off, those people had incredibly high levels of what we call the Kessler 6 score, the K6 score. Uh, in some cases, PTSD levels, meaning it would affect their daily functioning. Again, both in the survival stage and then in the long-term mental health recovery stage, these horizontal ties were so critical. And, you know, in the book, I know you give some very specific sort of individual. Those stories are really told among some of the individuals. And so as folks read this, I think that that's a really powerful illustration of these broader points that, you, that you're talking about were, were very effectively captured. Um, I, I, there were also kind of two sort of policy pieces here that that sort of came out that I, I remember reading. And the first one is that actually this kind of neighbors helping neighbors was against what was supposed to be done, right? That if right. there's a that's tsunami, correct. you're supposed to just run and not look back. Don't stop correct. to help people. That That's the direction, right? Yep. Yeah. It's called Tendenko in Japanese. And people are trained don't go back for family members, for possessions, for an animal or a pet. Just run and save yourself. And again, in, this, in the interviews that we did and the data that we found, uh, the survivors only survived because people violated that policy training. And, and then on the other uh, end, like you said, you know, one of the big um, uh, stabilizing forces of folks who who moved around were with if they had that kinship with folks that kind of moved with them. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but but the the ideal evacuation was supposed to preserve those folks, sort of put folks from the same neighborhood together, but that wasn't always able to be accomplished. Is that correct? Yeah, that? And it, yeah. This was an outcome of the 1995 Kobe earthquake. There was a very famous finding called Kodokushi, or lonely deaths. Unfortunately, in 1995, after the earthquake there in January, many of the elderly were rushed to their own new homes, often in high rises far from their old homes, and the idea was to get them just someplace permanent, rather than keeping them in some kind of short-term temporary housing. It was a great motivation. Unfortunately, I think several hundred, maybe 450 people, passed away of what the Japanese authorities called these lonely deaths there, where people who had now no friends, no doctors nearby, no shops they knew, no one in the complex knew who they were to check on them. They really were isolated there. And the government said in 1995, a long time ago, that they would encourage from now on every evacuation to be done as a group or community evacuation. It wouldn't just be me moving to a more permanent house from 
uh, shelter. It would be me and my neighbors and their neighbors as well. I would say roughly one in five local governments used the communal evacuation approach. And there's actually some great paperwork that's been done recently by Hikuchi and his colleagues about this, showing those who did move together kept those ties intact. But unfortunately, most, most communities that I studied did not use that. They, again, just found whatever was available quickly. They would say, okay, uh, you know, you're over 80, you get a priority, you go over to here, this community here, or we have this new uh, female trailer, we can put you there for a few months, which became years, and in fact, it's been six and a half, seven years for some communities are still, still living in FEMA trailers. So yes, uh, the, the reality was many communities were broken apart in the evacuation itself, and again, that's a policy that we can fix. This is a, a man-made problem, again, where we're making choices that de- that uh, devastate these social ties. Yeah, and I, you know, I appreciate that, that so much when we start getting into social co- uh, cohesion and, and the connectedness of people within a community, how do you sort of construct that? How do you address that in disaster policy? And right off the bat, I mean, it's, it, there's some clear, clear data sort of pointing in different um, different directions on um, different policy directions that that can be taken or at least um, considered with the with everything else going on. Um, so we've been talking about horizontal ties. Let's talk about vertical ties a little bit more now. I always feel like um, <laughs> I, I was like this because it's you know I started originally in theater and they would always say in theater that it you know it it, it um, helps you understand with the heart what you already understand with the mind and i feel like a lot of this research does the opposite like we already know in our heart right that connected <laughs> communities do better now you've got the data to support it yeah. um yeah. And, and similarly with the, the vertical ties if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how that does or doesn't help in yeah, the my disaster. favorite example of this was a community i'm calling the book coastal city which i visited and i immediately noticed completely out of proportion levels of investment in this community so, for example, I thought was, there was a bridge connecting the mountains and the main city. And I got closer and closer, and it wasn't a bridge. It was a conveyor belt. And I began asking my colleagues, hey, what's going on here? This is carrying this is like ground-up dirt from the mountains down to the middle of the city. They told me it was a $200 million conveyor belt that was built only in the city to crush up the mountains and to raise the downtown about 30-odd feet from previous sea-level downtown areas. So I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's, it must be really wealthy. This community must really, you know, whatever you think of, you know, Westchester County or something, this must be the county. And they told me, no, actually, Daniel, it's a 16,000-person fishing village. I was like, what are you talking about? So of course, I had to go spend more time there. Uh, and it turned out this community had very early on, after the 311 disasters, called a contact, speaking of, of vertical ties, in the cabinet office who had control over purse strings and basically said, we have a crazy plan for reconstruction. Will the central government help us uh, with a massive cost that we have in mind? And for this one city, the central government said yes. Now, of course, there's some, you know, 60-odd cities along the coast, similarly devastated with very high casualty rates, also could use this kind of stuff. They didn't get this kind of aid. So this is the first sign to me that something's going on beyond just, you know, who needs aid. And unfortunately, by the way, this is another project I did a few years ago on aid, for example, in India. I tried to measure uh, which communities got after the 2004 tsunami. Was it those most in need or those most connected communities? And, and unfortunately, as you said already, the, I think the heart already knows, it was those communities that had the vertical connections that often got the aid in India, even though communities that desperately needed more aid were the ones off the map. So here too in Japan, we got, we got really good data that those communities with more strong, powerful, long-term politicians representing their interests in the central government, got more aid that would flow down from Tokyo, literally in some cases, flow to Tokyo into their their communities, again, which are typically very small coastal communities. These are not wealthy uh, manufacturing types. Most of them are fishing and farming communities, you know, agricultural and and mining in some cases. So 
uh, over and over again, we found data that those communities that had more of these vertical connections had a better recovery. Actually, it was kind of scary. In fact, we showed the average community after about two years would have recovered around 70% of their infrastructure, business sites, and so forth. But these better connected communities would be around 110%, meaning they would build back more roads, more schools, more businesses. The, the largesse, the, the clientelism from the central government would bring in resources to these well-connected communities that, that the less connected communities could not get. And by the way, this was controlling for horizontal ties. So, you know, the, the story I hope to tell was that at all levels of recovery, right, what really matters are these horizontal ties. And finding this out was a little shocking, honestly, you know, this very clear data, that it was not a factor of uh, casualty rates or damage or economic need or anything else like that. But really here was a case where clear data showing those connected communities were the ones that got the aid uh, and more of it more quickly. Yeah, you know, I always think back to... Um... Yeah, even at the small scale. So uh, my family kind of comes from the Midwest and outside the Chicago area. And when we moved back and forth a bit, moved to Massachusetts, we we ended up in the town that the governor was from. And and uh, I remember my mom saying, "Yeah, I wanted to live there because that way I know the the streets will get plowed first when it snows." <laughs> Just dead serious. <laughs> right? I, mean, I, I laugh, but dead serious. It's, yeah, it's so true, right? I mean, in Japan, there's actually a story. It's not apocryphal. There was a very famous prime minister named Tanaka Kakue, known as the computerized bulldozer for the amount of work that he did on his, on his ministry. His hometown of Niigata, which is, again, a very small mountainous community, ended up having seven nuclear power plants. Mm. Now, this community couldn't probably even need a quarter of the output from his 2.122 gigawatt plants, but he got seven. Again, not because they needed them or because of the geographic, whatever. It's because the prime minister said... This is my hometown. I want to bring them a, you know, some kind of positive sign that I'm doing something for them. So here again, you know, we, we would hope during a disaster that equity need would drive it. But of course, we have a lot of data, right? Charles Worker, other people have published this already, that even during international disasters, we tend not to give to those most in need, but rather those that we have connections to. So for example, if we're a co colonial power, we tend to give to our ex-colonies. You know, if we have an ideological or linguistic barrier, we tend to give to English-speaking communities. So it's, it's pretty sad. I mean, this is, again, more data, a brick in the wall here, showing that we, we'd love to have the argument that we find nice equity across disaster recoveries, but that's just not the case. Well, and and uh, I recall in the book too, you sort of peeled back some of these layers, looking at you know party affiliation and independent who's not affiliated with a major party. Uh, right. The the central party may not have as much to gain uh, by by providing them a lot of resources. So it was it was interesting in the book too, also just to kind of see how how the um, political landscape would sort of lead to who had more influence and who didn't and where they were at in their career and who they were affiliated with, which, um, you know, I, I imagine would have similar analogs here in the United States as well as elsewhere. In fact, um, I know you've done some research here and there's some research that's looking at um, uh, uh, how the disaster recovery programs tend to favor the wealthy and tend to exacerbate yes. inequality in very similar yep. ways. Yeah. Exactly. And, and race, I think, also was a big yes. part of that. Yes. Uh, I, saw, I, think I saw the same study that you did, that unfortunately, FEMA, uh, you have two side-by-side -side communities with similar levels of damage, the wider community tends to get more aid. And again, you know, we, these, are, these are data we really have to have, and that, that for me is the excitement of doing this kind of work. We may have it in our hearts, but to convince a decision-maker there's a real problem in this process, or to convince someone on the ground, an NGO, or someone else, you need to be plugged in, right? This is not some random thought, but we really have data showing if you're not plugged into the process, you'll be left out. 
I think that is such an critical moment for us as social scientists. Absolutely. And I'll link to some of these things in the podcast description as well, too. I know NPR did some reporting on this based on links yep, back right. to some of those studies as well, too. So there's a, um, a few different ways you can read it, more mainstream or more academic, depending on your preference. Um, yeah. By the way, another thing I appreciated with the book was moving a lot of the data and everything to the appendices so I could be in geek out mode and go to the appendix and story <laughs> mode and read through the front. But it, it uh, um, you know, it, it uh, allows it to be consumed a number of different ways. So, um, But through the book, you, you actually sort of take it, tell the story from a couple of different elevations throughout it. And we've been talking through some of those here more generally, but sort of starting at that personal level or that familial and the community level and then moving up to the um, uh, to the region then up to the nation and, and even the international. Um, what, what sort of struck you of looking at it that way? What were some of the main uh, findings that you found and kind of jumping um, up and down the, the elevations like that? Yeah, I wanted to begin with the personal just to make it more real. I think a lot of times my fault as, as a social scientist is to look at the 30,000-foot view and just see, okay, here's what Japan did as a nation, as opposed to sort of drilling down, you know, what, what did Mrs. Tanaka do in her house on that afternoon as the ground began, began to shake? Uh, and it also helped to make it more real to me. So as I worked up from the individual to cities, city to, to regional, regional to national, national to international, I, I found a lot of the same patterns the same kind of things really mattered, whether you're an individual connecting to another individual or a city connected to another city or a regional connection to another region. Uh, over and over again, this concept that how people both worked together and governed together made a difference found itself repeating across these levels. So for me, that was a really nice sign to find, um, you know, even though I didn't know this was going to happen when I began this process, that a lot of the same kind of stories can be told for example, how a regional governor or regional committee would work. Can they find connections to other people? Are they connected to other NGOs? Just like if I'm a neighbor and don't know anybody, I could be in trouble during that shock. So that was a lot of fun for me to do that. But also I think it made it uh, a little more tangible as well. Uh, you know, I, I think my first draft of the book was really much more bird's eye and didn't have those personal stories that we collected, and I thought were really important to share. Of course, it's all anonymized. You, you can't figure out you know, who these individuals are, but the fact that they shared with me and the fact that their stories were a combination of just terrifying. Like these are the survivors I'm telling the stories of, right? Their stories to me were simultaneously terrifying and reassuring. You know, individuals trapped in a car overnight as the water's slowly seeping in and, and getting drowning them, and then deceived by a neighbor who saw them coming through, and you know, all these kind of things that I think really illustrated this concept of, okay, well, what is me, my, why does making my neighbor make a difference? Why do I really care? I'm a busy guy, right? I've got my screens and my, my family and my mortgage. Why would I want to spend time doing this? And read these stories of people who didn't expect at all to be trapped in a floating car as it's slowly filling with water you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, and you're thinking, okay, right, it doesn't matter in a way that maybe reading about you know, a national government policy wouldn't motivate me to change. So that's why I wanted to begin with the very personal, the very tangible, and then go into this sort of more ethereal realm of you know, what does the nation do, what kind of policies are there at the time. Yeah, and I, I, I tend to be a big fan of illustrative examples. At the same time, it's a slippery slope, right? You just put out one individual story, it's easy to pick apart and say, well, this was a special circumstance, this and that. But then to have sort of these broader data trends and then to say, you know, this is what it, this is an example of what it looks like at the individual level. This is a story that's kind of related to that. So I think it, you know, as you mentioned, it kind of brings it all into context. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm always a fan of when... Um, a lot of that 30,000 foot view is like, okay, well, this is what it means in your household now. Um, and that's a, that's a tough translation. I know we have in a lot of work we do and, um, but are always looking to, to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you went through this, I know you mentioned some of the surprises, like how influential vertical ties were, um, in some cases, um, 
as a complement to horizontal ties or instead of horizontal ties. What are some other like big surprises that you had in this? You've been seeing disasters in a number of places now, probably had some ideas going into it. Um, what, what stood out to you? Yeah, one of me was the overinvestment in physical infrastructure in Japan. Now, I've read about it. I've occasionally seen it. And this idea that Japan is spending $240 billion on seawalls after the shock, when none of the data that we had could actually affirm they saved any lives at all. Uh, those kind of moments for me were really surprising. When you see people stuck in the political economy of disaster, you know, much like Naomi Klein talked about, you know, when you have firms, corporations, and the government as well, uh, in, in some sense complicit in the concept that a disaster is a business opportunity. Uh, and here, you know, I spoke to a lot of construction firms, NGOs, residents, uh, and in many ways, the Japanese government just has this standard procedure where they, they know, I mean, they have the data themselves, they know that most seawalls, in fact, not only didn't help people, they may have actually harmed residents right, for all kinds of reasons, right? People couldn't see over them. Some residents walked to the top of them to look down at the tsunami and were killed. They couldn't see over them, so they didn't see how quickly they needed to evacuate. Then the seawalls themselves collapsed and often came across as projectiles into the cities, causing more damage quickly. So all of these negatives came out of the seawalls, but of course the very first policy proposed by the government is to rebuild seawalls as was, or even taller. And this is again, despite the fact that many communities have fought pretty hard, actually, pretty hard to say no to these seawalls. And that for me was a, a side story I couldn't pursue as much as I wanted to. There's a great work by anthropologists like Takezawa, who's written an entire book about how local communities in Japan, post-disaster, immediately knew if they didn't speak up quickly, they would be, be sort of steamrolled by top-down planning. And this is another area here. So this, the seawalls coming out of a standardization, sort of cookie-cutter approach, um, how simple it is for the central government to say, here's our national plan for rebuilding and recovery. Get on board. And, and again, for many communities who lack expertise or time or resources, there's really not much option for them. They just say, okay, a few communities fought back. So out of, the, let's say, 65, 70 communities that were heavily damaged, maybe a handful didn't build those massive seawalls that are now dominating most of Japan's northeast coast. So those kind of stories I wish I had more time for, but again, really surprising, interesting moment where a top-down and a bottom-up plan did not mesh at all. Top-down plan didn't have data behind it. Bottom-up plan was built in local interests, economic, you know, tourism, fishing industries, just the aesthetics of not having a 35 to 50 foot wall blocking your beach. I mean, yeah. you know, I've had the chance to visit these a lot. I've spent about for this book over two years in Japan um, since 2011, more, more than that, maybe close to two and a half. And, you know, it's, it's really an eyesore. These, these, these are, some people call them the Great Wall of Japan, actually, they're so big uh, and visible uh, from anywhere else. So, anyway, so that was, that was a surprising thing to me this, the political economy of disaster recovery in Japan just pushes them so hard to these big concrete infrastructure projects. You know, that reminds me too, in, in the book you talk a little bit about too, how um, the governance structure in Japan is a little different in the U.S. where, you know, we think of the power of the federal government, but constitutionally it tends to be more state-oriented and a lot of state com uh, constitutions put a lot of the authority at the local level. So while the yeah. resources are kind of top-down, the legal authority tends to be a little more bottom-up. Um, but in Japan, it's actually hard-coded to be top-down, right, in terms of the budgeting process, the, the authorities? Yes. I mean, in, in Japan, because it's called a, a unitary state as opposed to a federalist one, there's a lot of different separation of powers. In fact, the government would claim that any mayor or governor, even elected mayors and governors in Japan, serve really at the pleasure 
of the central government. And there have been a number of cases, like in Okinawa, where the government has actively gone against a local mayor or governor who hasn't followed through on their plans. So a number of the resources in Japan are controlled from, literally from Tokyo, where the seat of all the ministries are being set, where, of course, where a third of the population sits. Um, it's a very unbalanced system uh, in, in the sense that in a unitary structure, really the top determines what the bottom does. And there's very little wiggle room. There's really no lawsuits. There's no space for administrative uh, creativity there. So it can be a real challenge in Japan for local governments to find their voice, especially after a shock like this when they have a new plan in mind that might be built around local interests and local needs. Hey, and even in the, the taxation, right, a lot of the local taxes go back to Tokyo that, and then get dipped up, right. right? That's right. Yeah, it's called the one-third problem. Exactly. That's right. So most, almost no local government in Japan connect enough taxes to survive by themselves. All of them need financial transfers, the shukin from the central government or else they're not going to be able to build anything. And again, all of these projects talking about seawalls and so forth, all of them, all of them are ones that are being funded basically by central government dollars as opposed to local government ones. You know, it makes me think where well, there are certain uh, programs, um, you know, one we've talked about a lot, the hospital preparedness program here in the U.S. with uh, Health and Human Services. You know, it goes to a lot of jurisdictions and those with a significant tax base, those with access to a lot of other funding tend to be able to do a lot with that money. But other jurisdictions that sort of rely exclusively on it have a lot of trouble sort of stretching that funding to do anything with because it's not very much to come up with it's um i know i'm going off topic here a little bit here but it's just get, <laughs> it gets me thinking about how um you know the um uh how influential uh political budgeting is to what is mm -hmm. able to be done and how it's done it's also here a norm and again added to your the sidebar here on this it's also a norm i think in japan where local governments are both basically told if the regional government tells you, if the prefecture tells you what to do, take that seriously. And the prefectures are then told, what the central government tells you, do that as well. So you sort of have a suggestion from the central government, becomes a mandate, and flows down to a local government. Uh, and again, as you know from all the work, people like James Scott, uh, Nakagawa, Shaw, all the works that have been done on the challenges of top-down central planning, you often have this such a disconnect, whether it's in budget or financial decisions or administrative routes or personnel decisions uh, between those visions from the central government and how things will actually be worked out on the Absolutely. And I, you know, I want to go back to um, a thought I had before, too, uh, when you were talking about, um, oh, the uh, physical infrastructure. Um, and again, it just sort of made me remember some, some research I'd recently read here about, you know, this notion of personal preparedness and personal preparedness kits and how kind of the metric of a culture of preparedness through FEMA and, and domestically, um, it's maybe not their specific metric, but but the de facto metric has been uh, people with emergency plans. We, we've tracked it a lot from our center as well, too. And I read a couple of studies, I'll point to them, looking that there was actually no evidence base that that is a predictor of how someone fares wow. in a disaster. Um, wow. Now, of course, you know, absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence of absence. It, it There probably is some benefit, but there was um, a paper, I think, from some colleagues at the RAND Corporation that talked about how, you know, is policy actually steering people towards... Um, the most effective way of using their resources and using their focus um, in the absence of that. But it's become so pervasive, so so much the conventional wisdom without that. Um, and then you bring that to scale with these major investments in seawalls and things like that, where, yeah, it makes sense, right? You build a bigger wall, you keep the wave out. But now, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of new data because of the, the 311 disasters um, suggesting that, um, that, that that's at best an incomplete approach. Yeah, I mean, Peter Matanle, other people have been doing some great work on this, 
trying to trace, you know, are these new seawall projects, which are basically rebuilding the old ones, going to be any more effective than the last ones were? And also, are they built for climate change? And of course, the answer, unfortunately, to both those questions is probably no. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, there's a lot of research going on. But I also, you know, think here, the, the bigger question too also is, you know, what's the, the, the broader political economy, right? Who is going to benefit if you do this, you know, Boston's first response, this is about two years ago, to higher uh, and more regular high tides here that are flooding East Boston was, of course, to build a seawall. It took about eight months to talk them down from that plan. But Boston is a city really heavily informed by a lot of really smart people at big places, MIT, Harvard. There are all these planning departments here. You know, So it was pretty remarkable, actually, that the first thing they thought of was, okay, let's just build a wall. Uh, that was literally the first thing they thought of. And thank, thank goodness, I think it's off the table for now, as of 2019, 2020. But that was the first thing they thought of. So, yeah, it, it is, I think there is sort of a, uh, a mimesis going on, right? If someone tells you over and over again, individualized kits or large-scale seawalls are the answer, then that becomes the standard wisdom. And it takes a lot of pushing to break out of that, that sort of path dependence then of assuming, well, why wouldn't individual kits and the seawall work? Uh, you know, everyone says they do. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And and actually, so so my next question we've kind of been talking about here, um, as I've tried to apply all these things overseas to, to how it affects me here. Um, but but how generalizable? So you've looked a lot at Katrina, you've looked a lot at disasters around the world, and, and more recently, Japan. So um, we've been generalizing a bit on these findings in the US and kind of matching up. But how, how, how universal do you think these things are? What are some of the main things that you would say are exportable to other parts of the world, and what are some things that, that maybe are very specific to Japan, or at least would need to be looked at closer? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the social capital ideas that both in the short term and long term, horizontal and vertical ties matter, that's a lot of research, whether it's on Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, uh, some of my students, uh, Courtney Page Tan is working on this. You know, it's, it's a pretty strong evidence base now that around the world, all of us have access, or we should have access to social networks that can help out. And I think that's pretty generalizable. So Japan's experiences where survival and also long-term mental health were a function of horizontal ties, I think that's probably pretty common. And that, that the idea that these vertical ties also matter, unfortunately, pretty pretty clear here in North America as well. I think some of the other things that I'm finding out there about infrastructure investment for path dependency and the government response, unfortunately, also path dependence, I think, across the countries, whether it's North America or India, uh, I think there are pretty standard procedures how governments think their job is to handle a disaster. And, you know, I've seen a lot of movement recently on this individual kit approach. In fact, I saw a post not so long ago on a website that said something like, you know, we disaster managers have this, make sure that no one interferes, something like that. And I was thinking, wow, that is really the wrong message to send out, that somehow a centralized planner, even in a small city or community, can have it all under control. You know, where's the bottom-up community stuff? So I think you know this message that Japan can show us how important a bottom-up community-based resilience approach is in contrast to those over and over messages of here we go, build your kit, here we go, have the wall, have the wall built. I think that's a really important generalizable finding as well. Yeah, you know, I, I remember having just this this great discussion with a colleague at um uh, at a health department about uh, chaos theory versus determinism. Oh, wow! <laughs> it was uh, um, I, I, I appreciate um, I think everyone else in the room would bear with us when we would go off on these tangents, but this notion that <laughs> that um, but it was this notion of can you actually centralize things? Can you can you predict with certainty what's going on if the universe is deterministic? Um, mm -hmm. And if you believe it's deterministic and you can just get all the right variables in place and all the right information in place, you can predict and control everything. But if you believe that it's 
chaotic or at least functionally chaotic, then you have to have more of an improvisational approach that leverages community, that leverages, um, that includes uncertainty and the way that it's looked at. And um, at the time, it was a performance measure discussion. Uh, but uh, right. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was one of my favorite um, sort of on topic, sort of off topic uh, um, <laughs> discussions for the greater good that we had had. Anyway, um, but but I think all just sort of speaking to, to exactly what you're saying, which is that it, it's probably not realistic to with limited budgets and limited perspectives and limited bandwidth to leave community out of of control, no matter how centralized um, government is in theory. Right, exactly. And again, I think, you know, James Scott said this a long time ago, and much better than I could, which is that there's always going to be a challenge between mentis, like bottom-up knowledge, and attempts in the central to centralize, whether it's, you know, German forestry that tried to standardize the distance between trees and killed every other species of, of a tree in the area, which didn't go very well for very long. All these attempts, right, from central governments to manage processes from the center, um, because it's convenient, it's efficient, it's standardizable, they're always going to run into problems. And I think, again, in a disaster, whether it's during the shock itself or afterwards, uh, you know, flexibility, openness, creativity, encouraging a bottom-up response, I think that's the place to start. So, so with all of this, and and you know, we, the the book's out. We've got kind of this growing body of research. A lot of kind of uh, um, uh, you know, another generation of students and researchers kind of following suit, picking this up, and 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 doing what what researchers do. But but uh, what's next for you? What's next? What's the next step now that uh, now that the book's out? I was thinking about writing Guatemala of Love Poetry. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. I, I... But, but, but <laughs> when, when that retirement is done, I've got some pretty cool stuff that we're working on right now. So a few different projects. One is there's a project from Japan called Ibasho, which literally means my place. And a colleague and I, Emi Kyoto, began this work a few years ago uh, with Japanese colleagues trying to measure, can you in fact deliberately build social ties, especially among the elderly? Uh, and we got funding from the World Bank to go build projects, not only in Japan, in Masakicho, up in Tohoku, but also in the Philippines and in Nepal. And the data is coming in right now, so we have some first cuts on, uh, is it possible to build, deliberately build these social ties through interventions? That's one sort of set of projects we're looking at right now. Um, I'd really love to get some funding from Northeastern right where I work to do work on adolescent resilience to violence in schools. Mm-hmm. And here we're looking at, we did a bunch of interviews with adolescents, over 140 or so, really interesting, interesting uh, work from there on having a mentor, for example, or living in certain communities makes a big difference in the kind of responses students have when they're faced with, let's say, a drug dealer in the neighborhood or a gun, a gun incident that happens nearby. And then in the third area that I'm, I'm just starting to think about right now is a new book, that talks a lot about this concept of what I'm going to call hardware versus software. And that in so many of the areas where policies uh, seem important to us, here I'm thinking about things like uh, terrorism, crime, uh, natural hazards and shocks, we have these really standardized responses. Uh, Actually, the title I have right now for this is Breakwaters, Berms, Bombs, and Brigs, which is my favorite alliteration there. But basically trying to figure out, you know, why is it so many societies, North America, Japan, uh, India, Israel, have very common responses in terrorism, natural hazards, and crime to things that are obvious. So you build breakwaters, you build berms, you drop bombs, you build jails, uh, when in fact the data shows us that those are not the ways, especially in the long term, to handle these issues, right? There are many other different ways to handle crime, terrorism, natural hazards. So I'm thinking about a broader project here that would talk across societies and sort of be a, uh, let's call it a, 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 what's the phrase I'm looking for here? Uh, Mark, not not a, a screed, but a very uh, politically pointed argument for decision makers mm. about our need to invest in a different approach to these kind of challenges.
Well, I can't wait to see it, uh, to see that as well as to read the poetry and, <laughs> and see the <laughs> outcomes, outcomes of the other work. And, and for folks uh, kind of interested in this, too, I'll, I'll mention, you know, we talked a lot more about um, some of the other research that you've done on the, um, I believe the title of the podcast episode was Academia to the Rescue, and, uh, <laughs> and also spoke with a colleague, uh, Daniel Holmesy, who's, who's used a lot of that research yes. to implement yes, some sure. uh, resilience building work in, in San Francisco in the episode, All Resilience is Local. So um, definitely yeah. encourage folks to sort of hear how you know, other approaches for operationalizing this. Um, so a, a lot going on and a lot more to come. So, so what's the best way for people to, uh, to follow you and to keep up with everything? Yeah, so I, I tweet probably far too much, as my wife would say, and uh, at uh, Daniel P. Aldrich, it's all one word, and I do a lot of tweeting there, happy to respond to people's interests. I've got a few different websites. If you just type into my name, uh, one at BE Press, one at Weebly, where I maintain a firewall-free list of all my articles. We also have a data set collection we put together for all of our publications, including these that we're talking about right now. So students, uh, scholars, citizens want to challenge me and say, that's a bunch of nonsense, feel free. The data is yours to analyze on your own. So that's uh, at the Dataverse Network at Harvard. And then uh, I do also as much work as I can on LinkedIn as well. So if you want to connect me through LinkedIn, I'm also on that uh, website too. Well, that's great. So so the book is Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters. It's from out from uh, University of Chicago Press, but it's also on Amazon and, and most major distributors. So folks should uh, should definitely check that out. And uh, Daniel, thanks again for coming back on the podcast and for talking, th- yeah, thank, talking about this. Kidding. Great. Always fun. And another big thank you to Professor Aldrich for joining us not once but twice on the podcast. Hopefully we'll see him here a third time, fourth, fifth, however many times it takes to solve these complex challenges and disasters. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, we're on Twitter, at DisasterPolitik. If you want to talk more offline or be a guest on the show, you can email us at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening, and whatever you're doing, stay safe out there.